may be seated. And uh, as you're seated, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 13. All right, you can turn to Matthew 13. We're going to be looking at three verses, uh, 44 through 46. I want to just a quick say that uh, I have a uh, deep appreciation for John and Kim Baker. Uh, just so uh, grateful. Uh, for the fact that you guys have been with us, I think, for about 26 years, which is, we were young when we met, and uh, so just, and I know you're still young, but uh, uh, thir- chapter 13, 44 through 46. So just occasionally you come across people who get kingdom living and get what it is to take the resources that God has given you and to unleash them in service to the work of Christ. So uh, for that uh, example, uh, just simply say thanks for faithful service. You know, my wife and I uh, tend to spend some time down at the Jersey Shore, and uh, I have an affection for getting up early in the morning. I don't know uh, that I actually set my alarm to get up early, but I just tend to wake up really early. And one of my favorite things to do when I'm down at the shore is to go to the beach early in the morning to catch the sunrise. <clears throat> um, usually, you know, May, June, you're getting down there at 5, 5.30 to see it, and now, thankfully, you can go up more like 6.30 and uh, catch the beauty of the sunrise. It is stunning and amazing. Uh, when I'm there, I usually see... A few people walking around the beach with metal detectors. And uh, they are simply doing this. They're searching for something valuable. That's what treasure hunters do. Most of them have very little to show for the effort that they have put forth. Some finds, however, are notable. Uh, One find was done by, uh, by a guy named Roy Lloyd. He discovered a high school ring in four inches of sand in 1974. After a little research, he found out that Miles Baker had lost that ring 48 years before. And uh, Roy had the joy of returning that ring to its rightful owner years later. Another treasure hunter named Mike DeMar was using a metal detector on a dive off the coast of Key West, Florida in 2008. He discovered a 385-year-old gold chalice from the Spanish ship Santa Margarita. The ship sank in 1622. He was rewarded with a whopping $1 million at auction. I thought, all right, after I read that, I thought, maybe I'll... Maybe I'll change my thinking and go get a metal detector. (laughs) The truth is that most of those that search for such treasures end up finding very little of value. A penny here, a quarter there. I'll usually walk over to the people looking with their metal detector and say, have you recovered the cost of the metal detector yet? (laughs) For some reason, I don't think that they uh, appreciate that question. Well, in this text that we're going to look at this morning, it's a story about treasures. One's a treasure box, one's a pearl of great price. One is a man who unexpectedly stumbles across treasure, and the other is the story of a a merchant, a gem specialist, who is actively searching for the mother of all pearls. 
Now, in the account, each of the stories that Jesus gives, these are parables that are meant to add light to our understanding of heavenly principles. Okay, so parables take heavenly truth, put it beside an earthly illustration so that we go, oh, right? It it adds clarity so that that illustration helps us to see into the truth that we're struggling to grasp. Okay, and so in this account, Jesus uses two stories to help us to understand in context, it says, the kingdom of heaven is like. This is the teaching of Jesus, right? So the beginning of verse 44, it says that, and then again, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like. So he's going to use two stories that he's creating to illuminate truth about the kingdom of God so that we will treasure it more. Okay, the hope is that clarity will lead to clinging. Okay, that's the idea of what's happening in this text. Now, if this story is about the kingdom of God, then at some level we have to give definition to this concept of the kingdom of God. Here's what I'm going to tell you. I don't think when I give you the definition, you're going to go, oh, I never thought of it that way. Okay, because it is a, it, it's, it's a hard concept to grasp. We, we, we kind of get it, and at the same time, we struggle with how it affects our daily life. Okay, <clears throat> it's used 126 times in the Gospels. Typically, Jesus speaking about this larger picture that is at play in this small sphere of influence that his disciples and people have. So let me just see if this can help. Okay, so the kingdom of God is not typically in the Bible a place. It's not a geographic location. Okay, and instead it usually refers to a reign that involves God's personal presence. So when Jesus does certain miracles, when he's confronting the powers of, of Satan, the Bible says, Jesus says to the disciples, the kingdom of God is in your midst, meaning... God present in the person of Christ, actively working, is manifesting God's authority, God's reign, God's rule in a specific context or setting. Okay, so it's God's personal presence. It's also God's powerful presence, right? So when you look at the life of Jesus, you see him confronting things like poverty. You see him confronting things like hunger. You see him confronting things like sickness. You see him confronting things like demonic influence or the power of the evil one who the Bible tells us he's the prince and power of the air, right? Christ comes into his domain and in that domain through his personal presence he manifests the incredible power of God. Okay, so this idea of the kingdom of God has something to do with the presence of God, God at work, So every Christian, at some level, because of God's personal presence by his spirit, ought to be kingdom conscious. That when I move into an environment, I represent the kingdom of God. And because of God's personal presence in my life, I should be making a difference. I should be having an impact. Because when a believer is present, in some sense, God is manifesting his presence as well. It's an awesome thought, right? It's not a place, but a reign. It's God's personal preference, his powerful presence, resulting in peace and preciousness. Okay, now, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, what do we say? Our Father, who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name, glorified. Thy kingdom come. And when his kingdom comes, his will is done. Okay? So, so you kind of start to get an idea that, that when God's kingdom comes, his presence is available and his power is at work. That's what Jesus says believers should be praying for. That as we leave our house on a daily basis, we are conscious that we live in the presence and by the power of God himself. And as we do that, we bring the kingdom of God to bear in some way. That is a thought that should, in a stark way, amaze us. When Jesus was here, he manifested the kingdom of God on a regular basis in the ways that we already discussed. When things are broken, when times are disoriented and tumultuous, like the times that I think that we live in today, I long for the coming of Jesus to manifest his rule, to manifest his kingdom, and to make things right. I, the, the more difficult things are, the more I long for that in a personal way. During this last week, in my extended family, we had a, a sort of crisis. I uh, won't go into details about it, but I will tell you this. What I, in that crisis... What I longed for and what I want to ask God for is a, is a unique demonstration of kingdom in bringing a resolution to that struggle in that individual's life. I want to see God work. I want to see him bring to bear his presence, his power, his authority to bring, to bring deliverance, to bring freedom, to bring healing in that situation. So I want you with me this morning to look at these two stories that help us to understand our relationship to the kingdom of God. So Jesus is going to say in two stories, the kingdom of God is like. So as you live your life, orient yourself towards these powerful truths. So the first account in verse 44, it says this, the kingdom of heaven is like, all right? So he's going to point out that it's similar to, okay? So one becomes a foil, so you have the truth, and then he takes a practical life illustration and lays it over it to help us to gain understanding at a deeper level. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. Then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought that field. Okay, it's a beautiful, succinct story. So what is... The basic thrust of this account. Number one, there's a treasure hidden in a field, okay? Now, in the ancient world, you didn't have banks and safe deposit box and safes. So if there was going to be a season of war, of conflict, raid from, a, from, from an offending country, <clears throat> what people would often do is take their personal treasures and put them in the safest place possible. That presumably was to put it in a box Some would call it a treasure box or just a wooden box and they would bury it somewhere in the field probably retaining some type of a map to help them to remember how to get where it is. Okay, now, often in those cases someone in that conflict might die. Okay, it's 
possible in this account, although since the text doesn't tell us how the treasure got there, the key to the story is not how the treasure got there. The fact is that there is a treasure there. It's just that sometimes wandering minds want to know. Okay? So either it's probably something like that, that this treasure has been lost. It still retains its value, but it is unfound and unavailable. Okay? The next thing it tells us that it was discovered. We don't know how it was discovered. We just know that somebody finds it. I like to think of a man walking along through the field with a walking stick. And as he's walking, the stick hits the ground and there's an unusual sound of hollowness that attracts his attention. He gets down and begins to dig and he finds something of shocking value. Or it's a servant working in the field. And as he's doing his agricultural work, all of a sudden, boom, he hits something that echoes and he opens it and he is amazed, stunned, astonished at the value of what is inside of it. Now what he does then is the text says he hides it and then moves to secure legal claim to the entire field. Okay, now the text is not weighing in on the morality of the approach that the guy's using. Okay? It, it has nothing to do with the story. Okay, do you understand? So I'm, it's, the text isn't saying, <clears throat> if you're at work someday and you find a bag of cash in your boss's desk, buy the building, okay, and take the cash. It's not, what, it's not authorized. That. It's just simply the guy found something of incredible worth in a field. And when you do that, you will sacrifice everything you have to have that greater treasure. So there's something in his mind that says what's in this field is worth more than everything that I already possess. And so what you find is, he, he, it's, the text says this, <clears throat> its value is evident, right? But he has to take steps to secure it, to, to have it, right? So here's what the text says. He went and sold all that he had. And the idea is, there is no hesitation in the text. It hit him that, it hit him that such a discovery meant security, provision, freedom. It was life changing. That's the idea of the find. When you find something like that, what do you do? The question is, is he willing to make the necessary sacrifices to have that field and in having that field to have that treasure? Okay? Now, what the text says next is amazing. It says, when he found it, he hit it again, and then in his joy. All right, so what he found changed his disposition. It, it gave him hope that his life and his future, that his family, that everything could be substantially affected and changed by this discovery. So in his joy, he, he moves to liquidate everything. So this is a costly purchase. But the sacrifice is not begrudging. He's not reluctant. He's not wringing his hand saying, oh, I don't know. No, it's a, it's a glad, joyful release that if I give up this, I get this. Okay? So there is something in it that is also spontaneous. It, it, it reorients his life. It, it, it completely changes how he views his temporal possessions. They all of a sudden become expendable. He holds a yard sale and sells everything that he has. 
His life is reoriented. And it's fascinating if you look at this verse in the original language, because what you'll find is that three of the verbs are in the present tense. Okay? So it says, after he found it, he was going, he was selling, he was buying. It's, it all kind of mushes together into a single movement. Going, he was selling, and buying. So he became a man of singular focus. It, everything else faded out of view. And all he could think about was obtaining that treasure. The text says he buys that field. And the one thought that comes to my mind as I look at this, okay, I, I, I think about in the sphere of his influence, his friends. What are they thinking? Why is he so suddenly elevated? Right? And has he lost clarity? He is selling everything. Everything in his life. He's willing to sell everything he has to get that field. Has he lost his mind? And the truth is this. Apparently, yes. But actually, no. He knows something they don't know. And his behavior is not understandable because they don't know what he knows. They don't have enough facts. In the very near future, they're going to be like, oh. And I think that's what Jesus wants the disciples to experience. That when you begin to look at and comprehend the glory of being part of what God is doing, it will bring about a spontaneous release of lesser things so that you can have room for the greater thing. Okay? When I was a, a young person, we used to sing a chorus. Um, uh, and the chorus used to say something like, it said, Then at last I comprehended in my stupid pride and all that God could not pour his riches into hands already full. To have Christ central in my life, I must have a yard sale. I must be willing to give up lesser things to have the greater relationship. And folks, here's something I've learned as a pastor. When people come to the end of their lives, they are not typically very concerned about temporal things. It has a way of allowing you to see the true values of life. And those true values are almost always found in the context of relationships. And the same thing is true in our relationship to Christ. One day, if you know Jesus, the light bulb went on and by the Spirit of God, you understand, you saw, you discerned. 1 Corinthians 2 says, God has made it known to you. He's made it visible and clear. Things that you would not otherwise comprehend now become incredibly valuable. And when that moment hits, there is a glad release. Let's be truthful. That thought of Christ and the glory of Christ and redemption, forgiveness, his shed blood, all that we already sung about this morning, leads to a glad release. However, 
there are, there are times in our lives that the attraction of temporal things and temporal relationships begin to creep back into our lives, right? And we forget what's in the field. We all go through times like that. Okay? To our shame. This text aims to remind us that when you found Christ, there was a release. I remember in 1981, finally, in a clear way, being confronted with the glory of Christ. And, and, and that led to a surrender of my life to God's plans and God's purposes for me to move in the realm of his kingdom rather than my kingdom, which truthfully was pitiful in comparison. I'm not saying it wasn't attractive. We make the foolish exchange for some apparently good reasons when we forget the value and treasure that is present in Christ. So in this text, the first story is a man who makes a life-altering discovery. And the truth is, he, he wasn't looking for it. It's that when the glory of this treasure hit him full on and he understood it, his day changed, and he did not plan for his day to change. The next story says the kingdom of heaven, verse 45, is like a merchant. Uh, you may want to put in your notes that this is a a treasure hunter, and it says that he's looking for fine pearls. So this person is on an, in, and, and, and uh, what's the word I want to use here? He's on an intentional search, a rather intense search. Verse 46, when he found the one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had, and he bought it. Now, you notice the similarity in the story, right? Everything he had, and he bought that pearl. Now, this guy apparently is a, is a collector of sorts. He's a, a gemologist, all right? And he spent his life searching. Now, in antiquity, gold and pearls had similar value. Oh, they were deemed to be very precious items to own. And so this guy has spent his life collecting pearls, and he probably enjoys looking at the pearls. He's probably grateful that he has such a collection that when he pours it out on black velvet, they sparkle and they stun, and people want to buy them. That's his life. He had not found the one but he wanted to. So he systematically is spending his life seeking to find it. Secondly, I make this observation. It seems like this is a routine day. What does he do? He searches for better gems. But on this day, he stumbles across the one. And the text says uh, that this one is of great value. The idea is literally that it is precious in a unique way. It is precious in a way that causes him to slowly lose his grip on all the others. Because this one demands full attention. It is worthy. It is valuable in an unbelievable fashion and way. The discovery is followed by a, and I just want to say it this way, it's followed by a willing and glad release. Nobody compels him Nobody 
has to sell him on the pearl. He's seen so many, he knows that this one is unique, valuable, precious. And what does he do? It's similar to what happens in the previous text. It says, he went away, sold everything he had, and he bought it. Now, obviously, it's a parable. It's a story. It's illustrative. So it's stated in exaggerated terms, but it aims to press home a very important thought. That there are some things in life that are so valuable and so precious and so worthy that you should willingly sacrifice all you have to obtain it. I'm going to tell you this. There are many things in life that are like that. The truth from both of these accounts is that the life of these men in these contexts is deeply impacted by what they find. And and, and they immediately comprehend the value. And when they comprehend the value, it leads to a drastic change in their lives. Willing, glad, released. Cost counting and sacrifice. Decisive action. Everything spontaneously surrendered. To what end? To what end? See, I, I, from what I read in this very brief account, I do not believe he sells everything he has to get that pearl because he aims to sell it. I think he aims to treasure it. In other words, when you spent your whole life searching for the one, and then you find it, and you sell everything you have to obtain it, everything in life becomes irrelevant apart from that. Now, from a purely monetary perspective, can I be honest and say pathetic? Right? If you knew someone that gave up everything in their life to get this so they could simply look at it, But remember, it's a story to show the value of something in contrast to everything else that one possesses. And when he sees the value of this in relationship to this, in contrast to this, he surrenders this to have this. Okay, and that's all the story's saying. At the end of the day, he has what he's been living for. And presumably, in that he finds joy. So what are the applications of this set of kingdom accounts? I think the point is that the treasure of Christ, living in relationship to him and his kingdom, is so infinitely precious that the one who desires it is willing to surrender all to have it. Having Christ is so infinitely valuable that the one who finds him willingly surrenders all to obtain that relationship. Becoming God's child is of incomparable value. So here's the question I want to ask you. How do we buy the pearl? 
how do we buy the field? Meaning, if, if that's what they did in the story, how does that overwhelming sense of urgency, life-altering buying, how does that look in my life as a Christian? How do I buy the field? How do I buy the pearl? I think the first thought would be this. To buy the pearl, to have Christ, I must do my cost counting, and I must surrender all. I must do my cost counting, and I must surrender all. And here's what I'm going to tell you this morning. I remember in my life, in the most significant way, that that happened to me in a way that changed the trajectory of my life. Now, I wish I could tell you today that 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 passion, that zeal, that willing release and sacrifice has never changed. But if I said that, I would be a liar. One of my pastor friends refers to certain aspects of the Christian life as mowing grass. Okay? I mowed my grass last night. I hadn't mowed it for two weeks. I got like hairballs all over my massive piles of grass, okay? The truth is, if you don't maintain with consistent effort your lawn in a month, it can look like a hayfield. And it can be disturbing to your neighbors. Okay? In your Christian walk, by the Spirit of God, you need to daily... Do the calculation. And you need to daily assess Christ as more precious than anything. And you need to daily, spontaneously, sacrifice to have the fullness of Christ in your life. It's hard work to be a Christian. It takes diligence. It takes effort. It takes intention. It takes cost counting. It takes a reevaluation of Jesus on a regular basis by reading his word and speaking with him personally so that you are reminded of what matters most. So spiritually, we need to count the cost and daily we need to surrender. Here's the way Jesus said it. He said, if anyone is going to come after me, he must deny himself Take up his cross and follow me. That is to say that the call of Christ is comprehensive and lifelong. And well worth it. That's the part that I tend to forget. I tend to get attracted to lesser things, overvalue them, and undervalue the one who is most precious. Okay, that's the proverbial struggle of the Christian life. We live in a temporal world. We live in a world where there is treasure. It is tangible. And sometimes what we're owning by faith is more difficult to understand and grasp on given days. And we get attracted. And we need to sometimes go to God and say, God, I have been attracted to lesser things. I want lesser things more than I want you. Forgive me. Show me again. Show me again. Show me in a fresh way. Give me an insight by your spirit, Ephesians 1, into the glory of the promises that you've made to me. Help me to see with new eyes again what I am struggling to see in my human experience. Jesus says that cost counting leads to Christ following. 
One of the thoughts that came to my mind as I studied through this text is this. If I jump into the story of the man who buys the field, there's part of me that thinks his acquaintances, which aren't addressed, so this is just me extrapolating on the story, there, there must be some sense in which his friends are thinking, has he lost mental clarity? Right? He's selling everything he has to have that field. And it doesn't make sense to them. Here's what I would argue. If certain decisions that you make as a believer never cause other people to say, what? You may not be pursuing Christ in the way that you should. Your pursuit of Christ may be weak and lacking impact. You see, when the early church came to town in the book of Acts, the Bible says they said, here are the people that turned the world upside down. People that were known for their sacrificial relationship to temporal things because of how they valued and saw Jesus. And this is the struggle that we face. Another way that I buy the pearl is by gladly releasing my temporal resources. Okay? Heard a pastor say years ago, and it's helped me. He said, every person has time, talents, and treasure. Meaning, I got a day to live by God's grace. I have certain things that I'm capable of doing, and I have resources that God has given me. How do I buy the pearl? How do I buy the treasure on a daily basis? And I think to, to make it as simple as I can, I need to take every day and say, God, use me today to make an impact in your kingdom. Let me be a vessel that you can use today to impact somebody's life. You know, in, in, in the current context, there are large issues that are present in the world that you and I live in, in relationship to racial tensions and poverty and political issues. And it can be quite frankly worrisome and overwhelming to the point that it causes me to say, I can't make a difference. Right? Do you know that feeling? Right? And I just, I, sometimes I just kind of shut down. I want to kick it in neutral and just sit back and wait for it to play out. Hey, folks, that is not an option for a believer. What I need to do is ask God where, in my sphere of influence, can my time, my capacities, and my money make a difference for someone? In other words, God has not called me to influence the world. God has called me to live in Stewartsville, New Jersey, to assist in a pastoral team in a town called Washington, New Jersey. I do some business in a town called Allentown. Okay, I am not called to change the entire world. We collectively are. But we individually are to find the opportunity that God has given us and surrender our God-given resources to make a difference in our sphere of influence. That's what Christian living is. Lesser things keep me from that pursuit. And in this text, we're told that when you know something that is so much better, it should alter your daily life. 
your daily thinking, your daily, your daily valuing. As we treasure Christ, as we treasure the kingdom of God, we start to say, God, through me, through my life today, through my life in one life, in one interaction, let me buy the pearl. Let me think not of myself, not of my personal benefit, not of my personal gain. Let me think of how I can today make a difference in one person's life. In other words, if I take the whole picture of what I see on TV today, I am overwhelmed and I begin to feel and experience anxiety. But if I start thinking about the kingdom of God, and if I start saying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth in my sphere of influence as it is in heaven. And I say, God, today, I want to buy the pearl. Today, I want to buy the treasure. Today, I surrender. And then you go into your day with a hopeful perspective that in some encounter, in some relationship, in some event, in some, I don't know where it is, but in some area, God, today, manifests your presence, your life-changing power, and use a weak vessel like me filled by your spirit to show somebody a glorious truth that will change their life. Let it come through a word. Let it come through an act. Let it come through a gift that I give. But let it come. May God shake us out of our apathy, our anxiety that freezes us and may we look at the power of the kingdom of God revealed in our personal lives as believers by the presence of his spirit to awaken and enable things that we could never do on our own and when we yield to that and we surrender that and we we commit to that on a daily basis we buy the pearl we buy the field and we make a difference in the lives of those around us. Now, since this is a text about sacrifice leading to joy, here's the question that comes to mind. If I make such sacrifice to seek the kingdom of God manifested in my life, will I be happy? Will I find satisfaction? Will I find joy? Here's what the Bible says. I'll quote from the Old Testament and the New Testament. Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Matthew 6, 33, Jesus says this. Seek first the kingdom of God. Same context. And all these things will be added to you. See, sometimes what I have to do is remind myself of the promises of God. And I need to remember that I also often struggle in the reverse. I tend to hang on to lesser, pitiful, sometimes sinful desires that keep me from treasuring Jesus. We crave people's approval. We crave their respect. So we've sacrificed the true treasure for cheap, temporal substitutes. And we never had the joy that we long for. It's fascinating how this works, isn't it? Hebrews 13, Jesus going to the cross. It says, for the joy set before him, God's promise, 
he endured the cross. It's interesting, isn't it? That prior to the joy of what the cross would accomplish, there would be sacrifice at serious levels for Jesus. And the same thing is true for every one of us. The greatest joys of Christian living follow our greatest surrenders and sacrifices. So I ask you this question this morning. What stands in between? And what stands in the way of you having the joy of kingdom living? What temporal desire, what human approval, what financial thing is keeping you from buying the pearl and buying the field that has the greatest treasure? Because what you are sacrificing is so much more precious than what you currently are clinging to. Here's what I want to encourage you to do this morning. I want to encourage you to let go. Let go. Surrender in light of the glory of Christ and his promises and the glory of the kingdom and the glory of the gospel. Let go. And lay hold of that which is true, life-changing treasure. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, help us this morning to think back. If we know you personally, help us to think back to when our eyes were opened. When the true glory and value and preciousness of Jesus had great clarity. Lord, help us to think back and help us to, to, in a fresh way, lay hold of that today so that we can buy the pearl and buy the field. And in that purchase, following great sacrifice, find greater joy in Jesus. Father, my prayer this morning is that if someone is in our midst or watching online who has never trusted in Jesus, well, Father, I pray that you would help them to realize that all of, of the treasures, all of the possessions of this temporal life do not compare to what they could have in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would help them today to, to bend their knee before you and to say, Lord Jesus, today I confess I am a sinner in need of a great Savior, and you are that great Savior. And today I surrender. I let go of religious pursuits, of temporal pursuits. I let go. I confess my sin, and I trust in you to be my Lord and Savior of my life. Father, help us as your church to buy the field. Help us as your church to buy the pearl. Give us a free, willing surrender so that we can enjoy the fullness of your kingdom and the fullness of your purposes in our lives as your children. So as we go, Lord, let us be people that are kingdom minded, that take time, talents, and treasure, and seek to make a difference in one life today for your glory. 
Use us, I pray. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you as you go. If you're watching online and there's any way that we can help you, uh, feel free to email us at the church website. We would love to reach out to you, send you a Bible, help you in any way that we can. God bless you all.